This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 131st edition of the program. Today is February 15th, and before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who signed up this week to contribute to us either through Patreon or PayPal. And we have Andrew, Andrew Ligori, Armando Arellanes, Eric Tedders, Jacob Nettemeyer, Janai Burnett, Joanne Nordling, Kajartan, Lorenzo McGregor, Patricia Trott, Fook Lay, Robin Gibson, Todd Keister, Tony DeMio, Troy Sanders, and Terpena Molina. I am incredibly sorry if I butchered any of your names, but thank you all so much for supporting the show. If you'd also like to support the Humanist Report podcast, you can visit humanistreport.com forward slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's episode, first, we'll talk about President Donald Trump's new obscene budget proposal, and we'll also discuss what Bernie Sanders had to say about Donald Trump's new budget. Also, Kirsten Gillibrand is pledging to no longer take corporate PAC money. Tom Perez still struggles to articulate what the Democratic Party stands for. A year later, Fox News attacks former Trump aide and reality TV show star Omarosa. A woman was removed from the West Virginia House for calling out corruption. Hawaii becomes the fourth state to take bold action to protect net neutrality. Ajit Pai tries to block details about a joke he previously made about himself being a puppet, and he's blocking that joke and details about it from being released. Also, another internet service provider was caught funding an AstroTurf campaign, this time to fight public broadband. And we'll also talk about the impact canceling student debt would have on the U.S. economy. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. I am very excited to jump right in. So uh, let's do it. I hope you guys enjoy the show. So on Monday, the White House released President Donald Trump's budget proposal, and even though the likelihood of this ever being codified into law is very low, it still is really important because it gives us a template of Donald Trump's spending priorities and what he wants to accomplish. Now, to say that this budget is a slap in the face to ordinary Americans is an understatement. In fact, Vice named it a manifesto against the poor, and I think that that is incredibly accurate because this is another massive transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich. And of course, as you could have guessed, there's more military spending and whatnot, so I want to dive into the details, and first we'll talk about where he's increasing spending, and then we're going to talk about where he's cutting spending in order to make up for the spending increases. So first of all, one of the biggest things that stands out, of course, is the substantial increase in military spending. He wants to increase the military budget to $716 billion, and also he wants to spend $18 billion on the border wall he initially claimed Mexico. Mexico would pay for. Who's going to pay for the wall? Mexico! Who? Mexico! <laughs> <laughs> 
And additionally, he is proposing up to $200 billion in infrastructure spending. Now, at face value, that sounds lovely because, of course, America does need to fix our crumbling infrastructure. The problem is that when you dive into the details, it's not exactly what it seems. Vox author Matthew Iglesias explains that Trump is basically saying that the federal government is willing to spend up to $200 billion on infrastructure, but there's a catch. He's not just allocating the money to the states and telling them to fix the roads. He's basically trying to encourage states to spend money on infrastructure by incentivizing it with things like matching funds. But here's why this won't really encourage investment in infrastructure. Right now, federally funded highways, that's interstates and other routes, are financed on the basis of an 80-20 federal-state split, and federally funded mass transit projects usually get a 50-50 split. Trump's proposal is to flip the 80-20 formula on its head and require that states and cities kick in at least $4 for every $1 in federal money they receive. This vision of a stingier matching formula is defensible. Some experts feel that the current formula leads to overinvestment in new highway projects with little transportation value, but the White House's notion that it will lead to an actual surge in state and local infrastructure spending is difficult to support. States and cities are generally more fiscally constrained than the federal government, not less so. The practical impact of making the matching formula stingier will be to generate fewer new gleaming roads, not more. So basically, he's trying to, quote, encourage and incentivize states to fix more of their roads by making them foot more of the bill. And on top of that, he doesn't even have a way to fund this. He hasn't allocated this $200 billion he's proposing. He's just saying, well, we'll spend up to $200 billion, but he doesn't actually have a way of paying for that. So in other words, this will go nowhere and is pointless. And with the way in which Donald Trump keeps increasing military spending and cutting taxes for wealthy Americans, thus reducing the overall revenue of the federal government, well, as Politico explains, the White House can no longer hide the immense deficits it would create, not after the tax cuts and military buildup Trump championed and secured. And Donald Trump is aware of this. He knows that as the leader of a supposedly fiscally conservative party, he has to make sure that he cuts spending in other areas to basically accommodate the massive increases in spending when it comes to the military and tax cuts. So how's he going to do that? I think you already know how he's going to do that. He's going to screw you over. So Naomi Jagoda of The Hill reports, the budget also proposes reforms to welfare programs and Medicare as part of the administration's effort to reduce deficits. Surprise, surprise. And it calls for repealing Obamacare and replacing it with legislation modeled after a bill from Republicans Senator Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy that proposed converting funding for Obamacare subsidies to block grants for states. Are you surprised by that? If so, you shouldn't be. So that's what he's doing. He's cutting social safety net programs and trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act as a way of paying for increases in military spending and tax cuts for the rich. But that's not all, because he's also proposing a cut to Medicaid by more than a trillion dollars over 10 years and cuts the Social Security of $72 billion over 10 years. Now, additionally, if you're receiving SNAP benefits, Donald Trump wants to literally control what types of foods you're able to eat. So as Arthur Delaney of HuffPost explains, under the proposal, Monday's budget document says households receiving 
$30 or more per month in SNAP benefits will receive a portion of their benefits in the form of a USDA foods package, which would include items such as shelf-stable milk, ready-to-eat cereals, pasta, peanut butter, beans, and canned fruit, vegetables, and meat, poultry, or fish. Now, this is because Donald Trump wants to be your nanny. If you're poor, he wants to make sure that you're buying the right foods. He wants to make sure that you're not purchasing anything that's too expensive or too unhealthy. He wants to make sure that you're not purchasing these sugary drinks like Coca-Cola. He wants to basically be your parent. And say, well, it's not enough that your tax dollars fund food stamps and social safety net programs. I actually have to control the food you eat. So Donald Trump is saying, you know, I'm allowed as a rich person to have 12 Diet Cokes a day. But if you're poor, you don't get that luxury. But believe it or not, that's still not all. Because if you are one of the individuals that graduated from college with a massive amount of debt, he wants to do away with income-based repayment plans and loan forgiveness programs. And also, he wants to completely eliminate subsidized loans. So that way, you have to pay back thousands upon thousands of dollars more than what you initially borrowed since it's not subsidized by the federal government. So unsubsidized loans will now be the only option as of July. 1st of 2019 if he does get his way and I don't even have to tell you of course this would exacerbate the already massive student loan debt crisis but that's not all he's also proposing cuts to HIV funding by 20% which would actually result in 300,000 deaths per year he also wants to completely eliminate federal funding for PBS and NPR. Now, are they perfect? Absolutely not. But to just completely strip their funding, that's troublesome. And, I mean, think about this. What PBS does, at least with certain things that they produce, with their frontline documentary, I mean, they have journalists on the ground in Syria, in Yemen, reporting on things that the mainstream media doesn't report on. So, I want them to have federal funding so that way they can continue to produce these types of documentaries and get journalists on the ground in these countries and he wants to cut their funding. He also wants to slash the budgets of certain government agencies like the State Department, the Department of Interior, NASA, Department of Health and Human Services, Housing and Urban Development, the Education Department, the Environmental Protection Agency, and he's also proposing the elimination of 66 programs in total, including the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program, the National Wildlife Refuge Fund, OSHA training grants, the Global Agriculture and Food Security Program, and really the list goes on. So, this budget is obscene. This is him throwing up his middle finger to every single working class American in the country, saying, fuck you. We're going to increase the military. We're going to build that border wall that I said Mexico would pay for, for but you're going to pay for it. And we're going to cut everything else that... Americans depend on. And on top of that, he wants to make sure that he can even control the food that poor people eat. How condescending is that? You don't think that poor people are smart enough to purchase their own foods? Studies show that food stamp recipients, they don't eat differently than other people. They actually buy food with the money. They're not going and buying Snickers candy bars and just stacking up on Snickers in their cupboards. That's not what's happening. They're just buying what everyone else buys. And these are people that are working oftentimes. Walmart workers, they have to get on food stamps because Walmart doesn't pay them enough. And Trump is basically treating them like 
They didn't put anything into the system, so he should be able to dictate what they eat. No, you shouldn't. So this is absolutely egregious. And as I was going through this and learning more and more, I mean, this is a huge budget proposal. So chances are I'm missing other really important components. But this is egregious. I don't even know what to say about this. This is really a Republican's wet dream. Now, again, is he going to accomplish all of this? No, this budget will not pass. However, we know where his priorities lie. He wants to fuck over poor people, fuck over the middle class, cut programs that we rely on, cut social security. That's him basically taking money from us because we pay into social security and we're supposed to get it back. It's despicable and it's why you should never ever rely on a rich person, certainly a billionaire, to represent the interests of the working class. So of course, when he was espousing all of this populist rhetoric on the campaign trail saying, I'm a different Republican, I'd never cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, he duped you over. If you bought that, I'm sorry. But he fooled you. He duped you over. He got in there and he did everything to enrich himself and his family and fuck over everyone else. That's where his priorities lie, completely ass backwards. So after President Donald Trump released his morally obscene budget proposal, we quickly learned exactly how Bernie Sanders feels about it. And of course, you know, as we all could have expected, he wasn't happy and he ripped Donald Trump a new one. So I'm going to play a clip of Bernie Sanders, but first I do want to include a quote that he gave to Politicus USA. He states, The Trump budget introduced today is morally bankrupt and bad economic policy. During the campaign, Donald Trump promised that the wealthy would not get a tax break and that Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid would not be cut. But his budget does the exact opposite of what Trump pledged to the American people. Meanwhile, at a time when the U.S spends more on defense than the next 12 countries combined, the Trump budget calls for a massive increase in military spending paid for by cutting $57 billion in domestic spending from the bipartisan budget agreement that was signed into law just a few days ago. This is a budget for the billionaire class, for Wall Street, for corporate CEOs, for defense contractors, and for the wealthiest people in this country. It must be defeated. Now, during a budget committee meeting, he took even more shots at it in front of Mick Mulvaney, and this is what he had to say. Director Mulvaney, tell me about the morality of a budget which supports tax breaks for billionaires throws 32 million people off the health insurance they have, resulting in the deaths of tens of thousands of fellow Americans. Do you really think this is something that we should be doing in the year 2018? Actually, I don't think it's something that we're actually doing, Senator. Um, again, I'm not familiar with the article of, that you've mentioned. My guess is that it references the CBO report uh, regarding various Republican proposals to repeal and replace Obamacare. Uh, I do remember one of the major points of contention regarding the way the CBO scored the proposals was that it would assume that several tens of millions of people would be, to use your terminology, kicked off of health insurance by the repeal of the individual mandate. And when we drilled down into that, Senator, what we found was that the CBO assumed that if we got rid of the individual mandate, that millions of people would voluntarily no. give up Medicaid expansion. Mr. Medicaid Director, I apologize. We just don't have a whole lot of time. This well, is not the... I answer your question, no, go ahead. And I understand the individual mandate. This goes beyond. You're proposing a cut of over a trillion dollars in Medicaid. 
and independent analyses have indicated, we can argue about, nobody knows for sure, is it 25 million people going to be thrown off, 30 million? I don't know, to be honest with you. You don't know. But what we do know is when you throw tens of millions of people off, they will die. Some of them will die. Studies show that thousands of them will die. And I would just suggest that in the United States of America, the only major country not to guarantee health care to all people, we should not be making a very bad situation worse by throwing tens of millions of people off of health insurance. Let me ask you uh, another question. Uh, Mr. Director, according to Americans for Tax Fairness, the Koch brothers, the third wealthiest family in America, uh, worth $94 billion, and a family dedicated with a few of their billionaire friends to put hundreds of millions of dollars into the coming election, will receive a tax break of up to $1.4 billion a year from the Trump tax plan. Meanwhile, this budget eliminates funding, as I indicated earlier, for the LIHEAP program that keeps almost 7 million families warm in the wintertime. And the mass, vast majority of these families have children, or they are senior citizens, or they are people with disabilities. Explain to me the morality of a process by which we give the third wealthiest family in America, a major contributor, I might add, to the Republican Party, over a billion dollars a year in tax breaks, and yet we cut a program which keeps children and the elderly warm in the winter. Here, here's the morality of the Lahey proposal, um, Senator. Um, 11,000 dead people got that benefit the last time the GAO looked at it. That's not moral. To take your money, to take my money, to take the money from the people that... 11,000 people got it who shouldn't have correct that. But 7 million people get the program. To say that 11,000 out of 7 million, deal with that. I agree with you. All, all 50 states now have individual programs designed to prevent the, the cutoff of utilities either during the summer in the south or the winter in the north, which is exactly what the LIHE program was originally designed to do. Pennsylvania, when it gets 20 below zero, I come from a state which tries to do its best. Vermont and other states around this country, including Wyoming, don't have the resources to keep people warm when it gets 20 below zero. You have just created a situation, not you, the president takes must take responsibility for this budget, created a situation where people will go cold, some may freeze to death. And that is not what we should be doing in America. So, of course, as usual, everything that Bernie Sanders says here is correct. I don't know how else to describe this budget other than saying it's grotesque. To be that brazen in your hatred of the poor, it's not just that he doesn't care about the poor, but I think he holds them in contempt because the things he's doing, or proposing at least, would harm them. So to hate them, when you are entitled, when you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth, you're just an objectively bad person. I don't know how else to describe Donald Trump. Nobody could possibly concoct this type of budget that just completely dismisses the needs of the poor and spits in their faces unless you're just a bad person. What's the thought process of someone who comes up with this type of budget? Who puffs up the military budget unnecessarily when it should be cut in half, if not more, and then cuts spending programs or cuts programs that we buy into, like Social Security, cuts healthcare programs like Medicare, Medicaid. How can you do that? How can you propose with a straight face death spending 
as opposed to spending on healthcare that would save lives. This is where our priorities lie in this country. When we increase military spending, I mean, nobody really bats an eye. We don't talk about the human cost in addition to the just monetary cost. I mean, what he's doing abroad in these countries, in the Middle East and North Africa, he's killing people. He's directing our military to kill people. And with his drone war that he ramped up by more than 400% over Obama's, who ramped it up after Bush left office, he's killing civilians, innocent people. Nobody bats an eye when that happens. We've lost. We are a morally bankrupt nation. But when we talk about healthcare, Medicare for all, well, you know, that's just such a huge burden. And we just, we can't afford to take care of people. Really? So we can afford death spending, but we can't afford spending on healthcare. We can't afford education. We can't afford to cancel student loan debt. We can't afford tuition-free public colleges and universities. Why can't we afford these things? Well, of course, it's because, one, Donald Trump wants to enrich himself because when he gets out of office, he wants to make sure that he retains his wealth, and also because he wants to puff up the military. Why? Because... The military-industrial complex is probably one of the most powerful forces in Washington, D.C. They are pulling all the strings. They're the puppeteers. And if they say, spend money on the military, give us more money, Congress does it. And it's not just Republicans, it's Democrats as well. So it's time that, as progressives, we really start fundamentally pushing back and we relabel military spending as what it really is. This is death spending. And oftentimes, when we see these increases in the military budget, Republicans will argue, well, this is to give the troops an increase. It's to give, you know, uh, veterans benefits, you know, uh, more money to veterans benefits programs, healthcare education, whatnot. But that's not always the case. Now, to his credit, Donald Trump actually is proposing an increase in funding for VA healthcare while cutting it everywhere else. But that's good. But understand that when these military budget increases happen, they often leave out the troops. This isn't something that benefits the troops. And I know that a lot of people are instinctively inclined to support budget increases for the military because they think, oh, well, you know, I have a spouse who's in the military that will support me. That's not what happens a lot of the time. That's not what happens. This is money that goes to the Pentagon. They invested in jets and tanks that we don't need. It's unnecessary. So for Bernie Sanders to call out this budget, you know, everything he's saying is correct. Now, are Democrats calling it out too? Yes. But nobody ever goes into as much detail as Bernie Sanders does because Bernie Sanders isn't beholden to the same financial industries that encourage Donald Trump to concoct this type of budget proposal. So Democrats, you know, they're neoliberal. They support big business. They don't really care so much about the poor so long as the economy is thriving for the 1% and large multinational corporations. Bernie Sanders isn't funded by them. So that's why he can speak out against Donald Trump's budget proposal in a way that's bold. So I just, I wanted to share Bernie Sanders' um, thoughts on this because I think it's therapeutic to hear from Bernie. He really is the de facto leader of the Democratic Party and he's the spiritual leader uh, for progressives, I think. So what he says matters. And I think that everything he says about this budget is correct. Student loan debt is now a $1 trillion bubble. And at this point, I think it's safe to say that it is bound to burst one day. We don't know when, but this level of debt is unsustainable and it's crippling to millennials. 
and it hurts the economy because if you have this much debt and millions of millennials making high monthly payments, then they can't stimulate the economy. They can't purchase things to help the economy grow. So student loan debt isn't just bad for people that graduate. It's bad for everyone who is participating in this economy because we need people to have purchasing power and we need them to spend money to stimulate the economy. And if you are burdened by thousands upon thousands of dollars in student loan debt, you just can't do that. And for a whole generation to be bogged down by this, It's not healthy. It's not healthy mentally. It's not healthy for the economy. And it's not healthy for the future of American education because if incoming college students see that their peers are getting bogged down by thousands upon thousands of dollars in loan debt, then they might be disinclined to even go to school. And there's multiple problems with that. If you choose not to go to college, well, that limits your ability to find a good paying job. Also, if people stop going to college, That's a problem. I think education in and of itself is intrinsically good. We want an educated populace because that's how as a society we progress. So the fact that student loan debt is such an issue is a problem. However, a new study shows exactly what we can do to help out students and grow the economy simultaneously. So Jillian Berman of MarketWatch explains, wiping away the $1.4 trillion in outstanding loan debt for the 44 million Americans who carry it could boost the GDP by between $86 billion and $108 billion per year on average for the 10 years following the debt cancellation, according to a report published by the Levy Economics Institute of Bard College. Getting rid of debt would also lower the average unemployment rate by 0.22 to 0.36 percentage points over 10 years and could add between 1.2 million and 1.5 million jobs per year, it found. That is a dollar-for-dollar bump up in their net worth, said Stephanie Kelton, a professor of economics at Stony Brook University and one of the authors of the report. In addition to becoming wealthier, these borrowers would have more disposable income to spend on houses, cars, vacations, and other goods, which could fuel job growth. So this is absolutely huge. Make no mistake about it. It not only vindicates progressives, but it also validates Dr. Joel Stein, who, as the Green Party nominee in 2016, she pushed for U.S. debt cancellation when it comes to college students. She was one of the first major American politicians to do that, and she was critiqued by people on the left. Even John Oliver criticized her plan to cancel student loan debt. But as we see here, now this would in fact grow the economy, and really this is a no-brainer. Now there's some drawbacks people would say. It would increase the deficit, and of course, um, taxpayers wouldn't get the revenue back that they would accumulate, you know, based on from the interest from those loans. But who cares? I don't care about the deficit because at the end of the day, a higher deficit is less important than individuals being able to spend money and grow the economy. That helps everyone out. So there are also other ways to trim the deficit if you really want to trim it, and you don't have to screw over Americans as well. So clearly, after seeing this study, I have no doubt in my mind that progressives have to make this a plank of their platform. And I'm not just talking about progressive candidates. I'm talking about progressives in general. We need to talk about this alongside Medicare for All. 
and tuition-free public colleges and universities because I've said in the past that I really like Bernie Sanders' plan to make college free, to make it akin to high school, just make it a public good because I think it's an excellent way to prevent future students from taking on massive student loan debt. But the problem with Bernie's plan is that it doesn't do much to solve the problem now for the student loan debt that's already been created. So the direction is clear. If we want to grow the economy, if we want relief for 44 million students, we need to cancel student loan debt. And we don't necessarily have to do this all at once, although that's preferable, but we need to at least move in that direction. However, just days after this report came out, President Trump released a budget proposal that would take us in the opposite direction. So as Annie Nova of CNBC explains, the proposal would sharply curtail income-based loan repayment plans, scratch the public service loan forgiveness program, embolden the government to go after students who don't pay their loans, and cut funding for federal work study in half. Trump's budget would also eliminate subsidized loans. Some 5.7 million students had subsidized loans in the 2016 to 2017 academic year, according to Mark Kantrowitz, a student loan expert. However, graduate students would have their loans forgiven after 15 years compared with 20 years now, so they'd be paying more per month but less overall. Graduate students, meanwhile, would not have their loans forgiven for 30 years. So after this report comes out, Donald Trump announces, no, we're going to go in the opposite way. Instead of canceling student loan debt, we're going to make sure that that gets even more difficult for them to pay back. And that last part that this article promoted as a benefit, where um, their loans are forgiven after 50 years, 15 years, that's actually not a benefit if they're paying more per month. In my opinion, anyways, I think that, you know, the fact that you're paying less overall, that's good. But the fact that they're paying more per month, I mean, 15 years is a long amount of time. Now, to be clear, this is just a budget proposal. This hasn't been codified into law. This is what he wants to do. It's basically an objective that he has. But it just signifies that he wants to move us in the completely opposite direction. And even if we get a Democratic administration, will they be bold enough to just outright cancel student loan debt? We saw the benefits. It grows the economy. It creates jobs. It increases purchasing power of students with student loan debt. And that's just a no-brainer to me. I mean, how much are people paying back each month? Upwards of $500? That is a mortgage. That's a car payment. So how do you think the economy is going to grow if we have an entire generation crippled with student loan debt that basically can never be repaid? The answer is that it can't. So student loan debt cancellation is now something that I'm going to talk about a lot more because we now have evidence. We now have a study that validates what we thought would happen. And it's not that I was disinclined to talk about this beforehand because I was always in favor of canceling student loan debt. But I just kind of feel emboldened, right? We were proven right again about a policy that another progressive policy canceling student loan debt would do wonders for the economy. It would grow the GDP, grow the economy. So it's time we do it. There is currently a season of Big Brother featuring none other than recently fired White House aide Omarosa Manengolt Newman. And she recently made national headlines in the Big Brother house because she gave us some inside dirt about the Trump administration. And... I think this is 
absolutely hilarious and um she got the attention of fox news but let's get to what she said first of all so basically she said that every day she was haunted by donald trump's tweets and she tried to be that person to talk to him about it but people around donald trump basically shut her out and they cut off her access to the president um she also stated that she would never vote for donald trump again not in a million years she stated that if everybody really does want to impeach donald trump well, Mike Pence is exponentially worse than Donald Trump because even though she said she's religious herself, Mike Pence literally thinks that he talks to Jesus. That's what she said. <laughs> you are really dumb. Now, she also stated that she wasn't fully aware of the effect that his divisive rhetoric was having on the country because really she was in the middle of a hurricane and she couldn't adequately gauge the public's perception of Donald Trump. She also said that she accepted the job out of the feeling that she had a duty to serve her country and she was loyal to Donald Trump to a fault to the extent that she actually lost numerous friendships as a direct result of her relationship with Donald Trump. And when a fellow house guest asked her just how bad is it, she said the situation is bad, and yes, everyone should in fact be worried. So this was really entertaining to see her just shit talk Donald Trump. I actually do watch Big Brother. I've been watching it since I was like 10 years old. So the fact that there are, there's a celebrity edition that's actually relatively entertaining and the fact that Omarosa is on there. I mean, this is, this is, this is fascinating to me. So since she did make national news and actually got the attention of the White House Deputy Press Secretary, well, Fox News decided to talk about it because they saw this as an opportunity to defend Donald Trump. So this is what they said. And then I want to come back and discuss their hypothesis as to what her motives are in this situation. Omarosa Newman got her job as a presidential aide because, well, she had appeared several times on Donald Trump's show The Apprentice. And just weeks after she was ousted from her White House job, she returned to reality TV, dumping on her former boss on Celebrity Big Brother. Like, I was haunted by tweets every single day. Like, what is he going to tweet next? Does anybody say to him, what are you doing? I tried to be that person, and then all of the people around him attacked me. It was like, keep her away from Don't give her access. Don't let her talk to him. And it's like, and Bach is there, Jared's there. Should we be worried? Joining us now from New York, Carly Shimkus, a reporter for Fox News 24-7 headlines on Sirius XM. So if you couldn't hear the whispering, she said she's haunted by Donald Trump's tweets, and she also said she wouldn't vote for Trump in a million years. What do you make of Omarosa going off like that? Well, it is truly a bizarre moment in history when you can turn on your TV and see a former White House staffer sitting in her PJs on a couch, bad-mouthing the President of the United States. But the reality here is really simple. She is trying to stay relevant, and she's, you know, also maybe seeking a little bit of revenge after getting fired. But what Omarosa Oh, you think? A little bit of revenge, yeah, you think? Yeah, just a little, uh, to put it lightly. Uh, but what she is forgetting is that it's an honor to serve under any president this country elects. So by bad-mouthing the President, she's not hurting his reputation. She's hurting her own. Well, here's how the White House handled it, Deputy White House Press Secretary Raj Shah. Omarosa was fired three times on The Apprentice, and uh, this was the fourth time we let her go. Um, she had limited contact with the president while here. Now, look, I get, I get that, yeah, I, I think that's called distancing. We, we, we barely knew her. I, I get that she was frustrated in the White House. Nobody could quite figure out what she did there. And the thing is, though, that Donald Trump made her into a national figure. And is the concept of having any bit of loyalty just hopelessly outdated? 
Well, I think that the president hired a lot of people based off of loyalty. This one was obviously a big mistake and didn't necessarily take their resume into consideration, uh, meaning he picked the wrong people, which is why there was so much initial turnover among his staffers. Uh, but this seems to me like an isolated incident where she was let go, she was angry, and she's trying to get her uh, 15 minutes of fame once again. And she has succeeded uh, right. on that front. Right, 15 seconds is more like it. And, you know, look, yeah. she gave a serious interview and said, here are my concerns about the White House. I'm okay with that, but whispering on the couch. Uh, apparently, the strain has gotten to her because the reports that she was hospitalized uh, during yes. or after the latest taping of Celebrity Big Brother, which I did not know was a thing or was on the air. All right. Oh, it's a thing. It's a, it's thing. a thing. It's big. It's huge. <laughs> it's even bigger now. Believe it or not, I don't actually disagree with 100% of what they said, even though it is clear that... They're just trying to do damage control for President Donald Trump. So the um, the woman in the clip states she's trying to stay relevant and is also maybe seeking a little bit of revenge after getting fired. But what she is forgetting is that it's an honor to serve under any president this country elects. All right. So the question is, is that individual right? Yes and no. I think that she's correct to state that. Maybe Omarosa is seeking revenge. Maybe she's being a little bit opportunistic by shit-talking the president in, you know, the Big Brother house. So, yeah, I get that. It's Omarosa. She's a reality TV show star. She knows how to play it up for the cameras. She's certainly playing a character in the house. I think all of them are playing characters in this house, really. I mean, I'm not suggesting that it's scripted, but I'm just saying that they kind of know what producers are looking for. They want these outspoken characters who are going to dish, who are going to draw in viewers and eyeballs to that television when the show comes on. So I think she knows what she's doing. But to suggest here, it's an honor to serve under any president this country ever elects. That's just dumb. Would you say the same thing about Nixon? Uh, they weren't saying really the same thing about President Barack Obama. Fox News, they would freak out every single time he'd do anything that was probably the most benign things presidents have ever done. So, for example, he was getting off a plane, he had a coffee in his hand, and he kind of did this half-assed salute to a troop. They freaked out. They lost their mind saying he was disrespecting troops. They lost it when he wore a tan suit. So, to suggest that they respect the executive office is complete horseshit. They're just doing damage control for Donald Trump. Now, there was another portion of that clip from Fox News that really was puzzling to me. So, the White House press secretary dismissed her comments saying Omarosa was fired three times on The Apprentice and this is the fourth time we let her go. So, the Fox News host didn't see anything wrong with that statement. They're literally citing the times that she was fired on a reality television show as reason why they were justified in firing her now at the White House. That's a reality TV show. That doesn't count. And it has no bearing in the real world. And in the event that somehow did count for some reason... It would be Donald Trump who looks foolish for repeatedly hiring someone who is incapable of satisfying the requirements of the job he hired her for. But Fox hosts didn't even mention the absurdity of that comment. I mean, how could a White House deputy press secretary bring that up with a straight face and say, oh, well, we fired her on The Apprentice, a reality TV show? You're citing that as reason why you fired her on The White House? I mean, just say we fired her because she wasn't satisfying the requirements of the job. They cited The Apprentice. Ugh. 
That was incredibly cringeworthy and just embarrassing. Now, they also state, apparently the strain has gotten to her because there was reports that she was hospitalized right after the latest taping of Celebrity Big Brother, which I did not know was a thing until now. So that actually did irritate me because they're trying to pretend as though they are above reality television and these intellectuals only watch just the smartest of philosophy debates and whatnot. No, you voted for a fucking reality TV show star as the president. Shut the fuck up. We all know you're watching Big Brother and Survivor along with the rest of us. And he also tried to paint Omarosa as mentally unstable in order to delegitimize the things she said about Donald Trump. But she didn't go to the hospital because she had a mental breakdown. She went to the hospital because during a competition on the show, she had an asthma attack. Was she trying to play it up for the cameras? Perhaps. But to suggest that she's mentally unstable and therefore we should disregard what she's saying. I mean, it just shows that they're brazenly trying to do propaganda and dismiss what she's saying because they're trying to do damage control for the president because, of course, Fox News is the propaganda wing of the Republican Party. It's what they do. So, of course, the minute they heard Omarosa talking smack about Donald Trump and Celebrity Big Brother, we knew that they would be right there to Donald Trump's rescue. But with that being said, Yes, I do believe Omarosa is not an innocent actor here. She's probably just on Celebrity Big Brother because she wants to restore her image. And when she talks about just how bad Donald Trump is and how she didn't know how bad he was when she took the job, I think she's just kind of playing dumb. I mean, she's a smart individual. She knows what Donald Trump's presidency would entail. She knew the consequences on the general public that his presidency would have. But she just put that, you know, maybe aside in her mind because she wanted power. And additionally, to say that, oh, I just couldn't fathom how bad Donald Trump really would be. I mean, he's a tyrant. Okay, Omarosa, then you have to explain why you said this when he was first elected. Every critic, every detractor, will have to bow down to President Trump. 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 It's everyone who's ever doubted Donald, whoever disagreed, whoever challenged him. It is the ultimate revenge. Ultimate revenge, revenge, revenge. To become the most powerful man in the universe. The most the powerful, powerful man in the universe. Yeah, so when Omarosa plays the, oh, you know, I was just naive card, understand that it's just a card that she was playing, um, because... I, I believe that as an intelligent woman, she knows exactly what she was getting when she chose to join Donald Trump's administration. And so now she could smack talk him all she wants, but that doesn't change the fact that she's also guilty. She served in this administration, and that's a reflection of her character. It's a permanent stain on her record. Now, with that being said, on Celebrity Big Brother, I think she is entertain uh, entertaining because, yes, <laughs> I do watch Celebrity Big Brother. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Again, I don't know if that's embarrassing to admit, but I do. It's, it's my guilty pleasure. Um, I watch Big Brother in general. Um, but with that being said, we have to acknowledge that even though while Omarosa might be being opportunistic and attacking Donald Trump, I do think there 
is truth to what she's saying, but we also have to acknowledge that in defending Donald Trump and pointing out her opportunism, Fox News has an agenda as well. They want to do damage control for the president. So at the end of the day, I think that really it's important to realize Fox News's agenda and also take what Omarosa is saying knowing that she's probably talking about these things and dishing on these details, which I think are true, because she wants attention and maybe to restore her public image since Donald Trump is a very unpopular president. So I look forward to seeing how the rest of the season plays out. I hope she dishes more so, even though I don't necessarily take everything she says as the truth. You know, I just I just like the fact that she's triggering Fox News and that to me is is enough to tune in. The state of Hawaii really took me by surprise last week because they decided to come out and boldly support and protect net neutrality in a multitude of ways. So first of all, the governor of Hawaii became the fourth governor in the country to enforce net neutrality via executive order. So as KHON2 News reports, Governor David Ige is directing all state government agencies to contract for internet-related services only with providers who contractually agree to abide by net neutrality principles. He signed an executive order effective Monday, February 5th, as part of his pledge to protect net neutrality in Hawaii. An open internet is critically important to our people and our economy, connecting us to the rest of the world, increasing our commerce, fostering innovation, and adding to our economic growth. I have worked with my cabinet members, members of the House, and other stakeholders to protect the integrity of this critical resource, said Aig. And that's not all that the state of Hawaii is doing to protect net neutrality, because besides the governor just taking a bold step to enforce net neutrality indirectly through an executive order, the Hawaii state legislature is currently considering a bill that would be a game changer. So many state lawmakers have also spoken in support of maintaining net neutrality in Hawaii and are considering their own legislative action. If it becomes law, House Bill 1995 would regulate broadband internet service providers and establish a task force to examine the costs and benefits of creating a state-owned public utility company to provide public broadband internet service. So regulating net neutrality is important in and of itself. But what's really special about this bill is that it would create a task force so that way they could gauge the importance of a state-run public broadband internet service. Do you know what that does? That wipes out the need for multi-billion dollar companies like Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon in the state of Hawaii. This would be huge and it's not just important for Hawaii because People in Hawaii, you no longer have to worry about net neutrality since you control the internet, since it's run by the state. But that would serve as a model that could be replicated at other states. So if Hawaii adopts that policy and it works, Oregon could adopt it. New York could adopt it next. Then uh, California. And really, we could see this domino effect akin to the domino effect we saw once Colorado and Washington State legalized recreational marijuana. So when one state does something that is groundbreaking, other states are inclined to follow suit if it does work. So this could be huge. So if you live in the state of Hawaii, you have to call your state representative and state senator and let him or her know that you support House Bill 1995. It's currently in the House, so you should probably call your representative first. But this 
This is huge, and the good news doesn't end there, because as Nina Wu of the Honolulu Star Advisor reports, Hawaii Attorney General Douglas Chin has joined a multi-state lawsuit to block the Federal Communications Commission's rollback of net neutrality. So let's take a moment and step back and list all the things that they're doing. One, the governor is enforcing net neutrality through an executive order. Two, the House is considering a bill to regulate internet service providers and establish net neutrality. They're also considering a public task force that would discuss the merit of public broadband at the state level. And fourth and finally, their attorney general is joining the multi-state lawsuit suing the FCC for the repeal of net neutrality. Now, of course, I'm referring to the lawsuit that was spearheaded by New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman. Hawaii, they're setting an example that every other state needs to um, follow. I mean, this is this is phenomenal news. If you live in Hawaii, you should feel happy about the fact that your state is taking this issue very seriously. Now, again, if you live in one of those four states, Montana, New York, Hawaii, then you need to make sure that you call other states because we've got to make sure that all governors are on board. I've been trying to put pressure on my governor, Kate Brown in Oregon, to sign an executive order enforcing net neutrality. Unfortunately, I haven't heard anything back from her yet. So I'm going to call her one more time. Well, I don't know if this will be the last time, but I'm calling her again for the second time on air. I've also tweeted at her and whatnot off air. Um, and I'm going to see if I can talk with someone because I'm actually recording earlier this time, specifically because I want to talk to Kate Brown. Um, but again, if you guys want to call my governor, if you already have a governor that is supporting net neutrality, Kate Brown's number is 3782. Thank you for calling the office of Governor Kate Brown. If you are experiencing a health or other life-threatening emergency, please hang up and dial 911. If you are calling about services or resources related to a state agency, please press 2. If you wish to leave a comment for Governor Brown, please press 3. To learn about other ways to contact Governor Brown, Please press four to hear these options again. Please. Okay, so I can't talk to anybody apparently. We'll see. Thank you for calling. Governor Brown appreciates the many stakeholders and everyday citizens who continue to weigh in on the issues that matter to them. After the tone, please leave your name, zip code, and a brief comment. Hi, my name is Mike Figueredo. My zip code is nine seven two zero three, and I'm calling again to wonder where. Governor Kate Brown has been on the issue of net neutrality. She is not enforcing net neutrality through executive order like other states have done. So my question is, why has she not acted to protect net neutrality in the state of Oregon? I know she took a lot of money from Comcast, so I need to know if she actually represents the people of Oregon or if she's representing the interests of Comcast, which would explain her silence. So there's also a petition circulating online now, which has about a thousand signatures, 
urging her to enforce net neutrality like other governors have done. So I don't know what she's waiting on. I don't know if she doesn't even support net neutrality at all, but I'd like to know why she hasn't acted yet because one, her silence is deafening, and two, the fact that she isn't enforcing net neutrality unilaterally when she has the power to do so is very troubling. I voted for Kate Brown, and that will be the last time I vote for her if she doesn't act on net neutrality. This issue is too important to ignore, and really, in not acting, I question who she represents, us or Comcast. So, please relay this message to Governor Kate Brown and tell her to act and actually be bold. Now, if you want to see the petition that I mentioned, I'll link to that down below. Um, and again, this is just for my state. So I really hope that you call your state governor and make sure that you take the steps you need to secure net neutrality in your state. Um, because it's really important that we all fight for net neutrality. Again, I've said this once I probably said this a hundred times now. Net neutrality is something that we have to fight for. We have to take action. We need to take it into our own hands if we want to save the internet and protect net neutrality. So a lot of you may remember how just weeks before the FCC's vote to repeal net neutrality at the end of 2017, Ajit Pai attended an event known as Telecom Prom with a bunch of lobbyists behind closed doors where he joked about being a Verizon puppet with an actual executive from Verizon. And everyone laughed at the skit and they thought it was funny. He laughed at himself. And after a couple of months have passed, well, it's now clear that Ajit Pai definitely regrets making that joke, probably because, well, one, he literally is a Verizon puppet that voted for a regulatory change that would net Verizon billions of dollars in profits, so it's just not a good look, and two, well, now journalists are trying to investigate that skit, look into it, and see just how deep the collusion between Ajit Pai and Verizon really goes, because that wasn't the only instance of public collusion with Verizon. Just weeks before the net neutrality uh, repeal, he also gave a closed-door speech at Verizon's headquarters, and they initially tried to stop that speech from getting back to the public. Eventually, it was released, but... Now, he's realizing that journalists are onto his shenanigans, and his joke about him colluding with Verizon wasn't a joke. It's just reality. Yes, he was exaggerating, but the fact remains that he is on the FCC doing the bidding of his former and probably future employer, and journalists want to know if there is still a strong relationship or maybe a financial connection between Ajit Pai and Verizon. So Dell Cameron of Gizmodo reports, at its own decision, the Federal Communications Commission has chosen to block the release of records related to a video produced last year in which FCC Chairman Ajit Pai and a Verizon executive joke about installing a Verizon puppet as head of the FCC. Yes, the video was intended as a joke, but ultimately, Pai's decision to produce it and include a senior executive at Verizon, a company that he was poised to empower and enrich by billions of dollars by dissolving his own agency's regulatory powers, sent a clear message about where his loyalties lie. Pai's collusion with Verizon may not have begun in 2003, but on the evening of December 7th at the Washington Hilton Hotel, collusion was irreverently flaunted. Using the Freedom of Information Act, Gizmo 
Gizmodo sought additional information from the FCC about how the video was put together. In particular, we were after any communications records from within the chairman's office referencing the event or the Verizon executive. Nearly a dozen pages worth of emails were located, including draft versions of the video script and various edits. In a letter to Gizmodo last week, the agency said it was withholding the records from the public in order to prevent harm to the agency, an excuse experts say is a flagrant attempt to skirt federal transparency law. The FCC argues that releasing any records about the parody video would, quote, harm the agency by hindering its employees from engaging in frank and open discussion in the future. The idea is that it would be difficult for agency employees to do their job if every off-the-cuff idea they came up with is exposed to public scrutiny, said Adam Marshall, an attorney at the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. Only, the video has nothing to do with actual FCC business. So in other words, Ajit Pai blocked Gizmodo from obtaining information about how this skit was put together, probably because it would reveal a little more than how the skit was put together, wouldn't you say? If they're able to see these emails between a government agency head and a multi-billion dollar company, they're talking about more than the skit. They're probably very friendly, and again, this is Ajit Pai's former and probably future employer. So, they're colluding, alright? They colluded to create this skit. I mean, the head of a regulatory agency should not be joking with them when he's supposed to be regulating them. That's called a conflict of interest, and in trying to obtain information about this skit and how it was put together and more details, Gizmodo was simply just trying to find out well, how deep does collusion go? How close really is Ajit Pai to Verizon? And guess what he did? He blocked it. He said, no, you're not going to get any details about this kid. Now, in general, it shouldn't really be that big of a deal, right? I mean, they're not asking for something substantial at all. They're asking for details about the skit that was created, a stupid bullshit skit. But he's not even giving them that. And this really it speaks to the continued behavior of the FCC under Ajit Pai's leadership. He has repeatedly rejected Freedom of Information Act requests. He's not complying with New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman's investigation. They're requesting information. They're not giving it to the New York Attorney General's office. So Ajit Pai, the reason why he's blocking the release of this information is because he has something to hide. And it's not going to be surprising to all of us. It's going to reveal that he is in bed with his former employer. Surprise, surprise. But Gizmodo simply wanted to know how far this collusion and how deep this relationship between Ajit Pai and Verizon really goes. We know he is perhaps the biggest puppet in the history of the FCC. He just doesn't want additional details about him being a sellout getting out. But it's too late, Ajit Pai. <laughs> you already did their bidding. You, you gave them the exact policy concession that they spent millions lobbying Congress for. You did that, Ajit, so you're already a sellout. We're not going to get anything surprising. We just want to dig a little bit deeper and learn more about your connection with uh, Verizon. And if you didn't have anything to hide, you would release that information. And again, this is a joke he made about himself. This isn't a joke that someone else made. This is a joke that he made about himself, he put together, that he probably didn't expect to get out, but nonetheless, I mean, he decided to create this skit. And he knew that there was at least a possibility, I'm assuming, that it would get out, and it did, and now we want more details. And now he's saying, oh, no, 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 this would hurt the agency. Well, don't you think that implying that you're colluding with a multi-billion dollar company, 
that's fighting against the interests of consumers would be harmful to begin with? Did you not think that public opinion of the FCC would go down substantially if that video got out? I mean, this has to be one of the most irresponsible, idiotic agency heads the country has ever seen. Ajit Pai should be absolutely embarrassed, but he has zero shame. Hence why he continues to embarrass himself by making these skits and um, doing the Harlem Shake in 2017 and uh, playing with fidget spinners. He's just an idiot and a jackass. So in order to rake in millions of dollars in profits, or in some instances, billions of dollars in profits, internet service providers, they have to push for policies that the overwhelming majority of the American people just don't support. So we saw a couple of weeks ago how AT&T actually funded an AstroTurf campaign. They teamed up with a Democratic Party think tank, the Public Policy Institute, to basically make it seem as though the public was in favor of a law that secures net neutrality when in actuality this law does not secure net neutrality. The way to save net neutrality is through the Congressional Review Act, but they funded an AstroTurf campaign in order to persuade members of Congress that the public actually doesn't want that. Now, the reason why they have to do these AstroTurf campaigns is because nobody supports what they're pushing. The American people don't support what they're pushing, so there's no way that they could possibly muster up the grassroots support to help push for their agenda because they have an agenda that only benefits them. So we saw now another instance after the AT&T debacle showing that another internet service provider was willing to fund an AstroTurf campaign, but this time not to uh, defeat net neutrality, to defeat movement towards a public broadband system in one city. So according to Kieran McCarthy of The Register, cable biz Fidelity Communications has been forced to admit it was behind an astroturfing campaign against the city-run fiber network in America's Midwest. The campaign, titled Stop City Funded Internet, started last month with a website and accompanying social media handles and has been a persistent critic of efforts by West Plains, Missouri to expand its homegrown broadband network to include more businesses, and even residential customers. Who exactly is behind the campaign has been the subject of intense interest with the campaign's main website, revealing only that it was funded by, quote, a collection of fiscally conservative Missourians. However, one enterprising local, videographer Isaac Protiva, was able to uncover the truth. Cable company Fidelity Communications, which offers internet access in five states, including Missouri, and boasts 115,000 customers. The ISP had paid a marketing outfit based in Arizona to carry out the campaign. How did he figure it out? The marketing company screwed up when it named materials on StopCityFundedInternet.com. Specifically, two images on the site were spotted revealing Fidelity as a client. Incredibly, one was the site's main header image called Fidelity, SCFI website v2.jpg. The second image was on a privacy page and was hosted on a server called fidelity.dmwebtest.com. Talk about a smoking gun. That server's domain name led back to DM Web Dev Group based in Scottsdale, Arizona, owned by marketing veterans Martin Lackin and David Ammerman. So there we have another internet service provider caught red-handed funding an AstroTurf campaign against the people. Since they don't have people on their side, this is what they do. They pretend as though people are on their side with these AstroTurf campaigns. You can't do grassroots, you do AstroTurf. Fake grassroots. So... It's just ridiculous, and the reason why I'm talking about this story 
Um, well, it, obviously, it's to shit on Fidelity Communications. They should be ashamed of themselves. But in our push for public broadband, I want you to be cognizant of the reality of the situation. This is going to happen if you fight for public broadband in your city and it actually gains momentum. This is the type of shenanigans that will ensue, and they're probably contributing to politicians in that city to make sure that they buy them off, and they buy not just loyalty, but they buy people who are not willing to oppose them, even if they disagree with their agenda. So if you want public broadband, it's going to be a hell of a fight. You're not just going to be able to pressure your city council and get it implemented, you're going to have to fight tooth and nail because special interests like internet service providers don't want that because that existentially threatens them. I mean, what public funded broadband is to internet service providers is what Medicare for All is to health insurance companies. And so Fidelity tried to make sure that they crushed this effort to move towards public broadband, but unfortunately for them and fortunately for everyone else, it backfired and they were busted. So anytime you see something that looks fishy, if you see a so-called grassroots campaign that is pushing for something that's just incredibly unpopular and idiotic unless they're an executive at a company, chances are the ISP is behind it. And that's not just true for internet service providers. It's true for other industries as well. They're willing to play dirty, which is why we have to fight them tooth and nail. So this is what we have to expect if we are going to um, bring up public broadband to our city council. But guess what? We're still going to do it anyway. We're still going to push for that. And we don't give a damn about what these internet service providers want. Because at the end of the day, grassroots support is always more powerful than AstroTurf. Because AstroTurf is hollow. It's fake. People can come out in numbers and show that they exist. And show that they support a policy. AstroTurf campaigns can never have that type of impact. It's It just never can. Because it's not real. So shame on Fidelity. And kudos to the, uh, the city council. Uh, for actually considering public broadband, it's incredibly bold and progressive, and it would be a permanent solution to save net neutrality. Chances are, if you're watching this, you've already seen the viral video that I'm about to show you, but I think that this serves as a really important example that demonstrates just how fundamentally broken our system is. So to give you the context, Russell Mockhibber of Common Dreams reports, Lissa Lucas traveled the 100 miles from her home in Cairo, West Virginia, to the state capitol in Charleston Friday to testify against an oil and gas industry-sponsored bill, HB 4268, that would allow companies to drill on minority mineral owners' land without their consent. Now, she had the opportunity to finally speak, and she called out corruption of state lawmakers in a way that I've never seen before. And their response is very telling. So this is what happened. Mr. Secretary, Lisa Lucas, followed by Scott Windham. It's Lisa Lucas. Uh, and first, I'd just like to say that um, no jobs will be created by this. If, if we could get a guarantee of jobs, that would be great. Um, I'd also like to point out that the people who are going to be speaking in favor of this bill are all going to be paid by the industry, and the people who are going to be voting on this bill are also often paid by the industry. For example, and I have to keep it short simply because the public only gets a minute 45 while lobbyists can throw a gala at the Marriott with whiskey and wine and talk for hours to the delegates. So to keep it short, 
uh, on the Judiciary Committee, Charlotte Lane, about $10,000 from gas and oil interest, including AEP, Marathon, First Energy, Dominion, EQT, and I could go on. Next, let's talk about John Schott from Mercer. First Energy, $2,000. Appalachian Power, $2,000. Steptoe and Johnson, that's a gas and oil law firm, $2,000. Console Energy, $1,000. EQT, $1,000. And I could go on. Now let's talk about Jason Harshbarger. Ms. Lucas, uh, we ask no personal comments be made. If you want to talk about this, is not personal comments. It is These a personal comment, and I'm going to call you out of order if you're talking about individuals on the committee. So, uh, if you would just address the bill. If not, I'll ask you to please step down. Jason took uh, $3,500, about 40% his money comes. The next speaker would be Julie Archer. So clearly, they all have something to hide. You don't escort someone out when they only have a minute to speak anyway, unless you're embarrassed. But clearly, she was exposing all of them as sellouts, saying that they only support this bill because they've taken contributions from the oil and gas industry. And this is what she said after she was removed. Quote, as I tried to give my remarks at the public hearing this morning on HB 4268 in defense of our constitutional property rights, I got dragged out of the House of Chambers, Lucas said. Why? Because I was listing out who has been donating to delegates on the Judiciary Committee. So the way that she held those state legislators accountable is a model that should be replicated at the national level because chances are, I think nine times out of ten, if a politician is against something that the majority of the people support, they're probably taking contributions from the industry. That's usually a safe bet. So the fact that she listed their specific contributions, I would like to see this in Congress. I would like Bernie Sanders to say, well, look, the reason why Republicans are voting for this tax bill is because we have Orrin Hatch. He took X amount of dollars from this billion dollar company from this multi-trillion dollar industry. This is a really effective way, I think, to just name and shame people. And yes, it can be divisive. You're name dropping, but we have to do that so that way they do feel ashamed of the contributions they're taking, to be ashamed of the just brazen corruption. I mean, we saw just after the tax plan was passed, Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, got a huge payday, millions of dollars from the Kochs. So they encouraged lawmakers to pass the tax reform plan that Donald Trump was pushing. Once they passed it, they got a big payday, and they were expecting that payday. So this level of corruption is sickening, and if we don't stop it, if we don't actually get campaign finance reform, we're not going to have a democracy for much longer. If you can even argue, if you want to even argue that we live in a democracy currently, I don't think we have a democracy anymore. In fact, we were literally just downgraded to a flawed democracy. So I don't know what it's going to take short of a Bernie Sanders style political revolution to get money out of politics, but I think 
Emulating this strategy that Lissa set for us is a way to make sure that we hold elected officials accountable. Now, Lissa actually is running for the state legislature in West Virginia, and I looked up her policy positions, and at face value, it doesn't necessarily seem like she's a staunch progressive, but she probably is because she actually supported Bernie Sanders in 2016, but you won't really see a mention of Medicare for All or anything like that, and I think that this is because she's choosing to focus more heavily on state and local issues, which makes sense since she's running for her state legislature. But let's consider for a second, hypothetically, that she was against Medicare for All. I would still respect her knowing that she's against it for principled reasons. Is she wrong? Yes. And again, I'm I'm uh, hypothesizing. I'm not saying that she's against Medicare for All because I don't know. But if she were against Medicare for All, well, if she's against it just because she's personally against it because she thinks that she prefers a public option, I would respect her position knowing that she's not being funded by the health insurance industry. But a reason why, for example, the Democratic Party the reason why they're against Medicare for All is because they take millions upon millions of dollars collectively from the health insurance industry, and they know they're not going to get that money if they vote for a Medicare for All system because that existentially threatens health insurance companies. So to take a principled position on policy, I can respect that even if I disagree with you because you're having a real debate about the issues and the merits of policies. But to accept a position specifically because you were funded by an industry that benefits from the policy position you're taking, that's a quid pro quo, that's corruption, and it's unacceptable, and I don't respect you. So what she was doing, again, was a really effective way of naming and shaming, and if they had nothing to hide, they wouldn't have kicked her out. So kudos to Lissa. I think that she's a hero for doing what she did here, and the fact that this is now going viral, I mean... It just shows that people are paying attention. The fact that it attracted this many eyeballs to the video, it gives me hope that people are aware of the things that are happening, even at the state level, and just how corruption and money in politics really is a noxious virus that is making politicians not care about what you want because they're beholden to their corporate donors. So kudos to Lissa. So we really got some pleasantly surprising news for the first time in a while regarding Kirsten Gillibrand. So she's someone who I always characterized as a frenemy to progressives. I mean, at first it started out with her just being brazenly against us. She was actually a relatively conservative Democrat. And then she started to inch closer towards progressivism. First of all, she came out in favor of Medicare for All. And then I said, okay, great, but let's see if you're going to co-sponsor Bernie Sanders' bill. She did. And today, we got an announcement from Kirsten Gillibrand, because according to Ruby Kramer of BuzzFeed News, she actually stopped accepting corporate PAC money as of January 1st, and now joins just three other senators that also don't take corporate PAC money. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Maria Cantwell. Now, she posted an announcement of her decision on Twitter, and in the following video, she's going to explain her reasoning. Because of the corrosive effect of corporate money in politics, I've decided from this point on, I am no longer accepting corporate PAC checks into my campaign. 
the reasons why I'm so concerned about money in politics is because of the Supreme Court decision, Citizens United. We have a system where corporations can spend unlimited money that isn't even disclosed, so there's no transparency. Since I was first elected in 2006, I've made it my mission to create more transparency and accountability in Congress. And so I was the first member of Congress to actually post my schedule, my earmark requests, and my financial disclosure online. And I've since added to that my taxes. So I hope you will stand with me. We really need to make every effort we can to get rid of the corporate money and dark money that is flowing into politics. And my effort to ban corporate pack checks is just a first step in that direction. So credit where credit is due, that's a very bold move. And I know that she should have done this a long time ago, but for a Senate Democrat to announce this, she's basically shutting herself out from the establishment in certain ways, right? So the way that you get elevated to a leadership position in the Democratic Party in the first place is to raise a lot of money. And I'm assuming that Kirsten Gillibrand is politically ambitious. She may run for president. But I mean, Nancy Pelosi, she was elevated to speaker because of her ability to raise money. I mean, she even boasts at the fact that she raises a record amount of money. So if you are not taking money from corporate PACs, guess what's going to happen? You're not going to be able to bring in money for the rest of the party, and they're not going to really be interested in you or look to you for a leadership position. So they're not going to really want to tap Kirsten Gillibrand for DNC chair or any position in the DNC. They're not going to want to tap her as a party leader, Senate majority leader one day maybe, or a minority leader to Chuck Schumer's position if she's not taking corporate back money. This is a very, very bold uh, move for Kirsten Gillibrand. Now, I get it. A lot of you are still skeptical because she's already accepted the money from, you know, Wall Street and whatnot, um, Goldman Sachs even, and she's not saying she's going to give that money back. And in fact, just to show you that I'm skeptical as well, this is what I said about her a couple of weeks ago when I did talk about her saying why she believed Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are the Democratic Party's leaders. The problem with Kirsten Gillibrand is that if we're being real here, she does a great job at talking the talk, but again, as I alluded to earlier, she is not walking the walk. And when you dig a bit deeper, you'll quickly realize that she's not as progressive as she wants us to think she is. So for example, there's a substantial amount of dark money that is financing her campaign. She's taken a combined $7.6 in Super PAC contributions overall, and a plethora of unsavory organizations have contributed to her Super PACs, including Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Blackstone. So as you can see, clearly, um, I was pretty skeptical. And admittedly, I'm still skeptical just because I am a skeptical person. Because when it comes to politicians, we've been screwed over countless times that if we were to just accept everything that they said, even from Bernie Sanders, we would be naive. But what she's doing here is great. Yes, already taking the money that she did from Wall Street, you can never erase that. But what she's doing going forward is powerful. She is setting an example for hopefully her colleagues. Hopefully we'll see Cory Booker and Kamala Harris follow suit. Hopefully we'll see Cory Booker and Kamala Harris follow suit. We need to make it clear that we're willing to take yes for an answer. And I do believe in positive reinforcement. So if 
these politicians are making moves clearly to try to win over progressives, then I think we need to actually acknowledge what they're doing and we need to congratulate them on making the right choice. It, this is the best decision you could have possibly made for your career, Kirsten, because now you're proving that you're walking the walk now. You're no longer taking money from these large corporations. I don't know how long that effect will diminish. Like maybe they already contributed to you in 2017, so they're expecting to have you bought off through your next term if you're reelected. I don't know. All I can do is speculate, but here's what I can say. Kudos to you, Kirsten Gillibrand, for doing this. This is absolutely the right decision. It's a bold move, and I think that when politicians do the right thing, we should let them know that they're doing the right thing, so that way they continue to do the right things. Again, positive reinforcement, I think, is very important. And again, I think that a healthy dose of skepticism is important because formerly Kirsten Gillibrand was not like this. She she wasn't. She wasn't even I wouldn't consider her progressive at all. And again, we still she suspects right because she recently stated that Hillary Clinton was kind of her role model. Well, if you think that corporate PAC money is a problem, then the corporate PAC queen probably shouldn't be your role model, but I understand what she's trying to do in saying something like that. She doesn't want it to seem as though she's abandoning the Hillary Clinton wing of the party in case she runs for president in 2020, and she still wants to let progressives know that she's serious. She wants to win us over. So that's great. That's fantastic. Uh, kudos to you, Kristen Gillibrand. Again, I'm pleasantly surprised. I wouldn't have expected someone like her who was just really entrenched in special interests in the so-called swamp in Washington, D.C., to ever do something like this that's this bold. But the fact that she's doing it, I think she has to be commended for it so other politicians will be influenced to follow suit. Because if politicians stop taking corporate money, this is how we actually get policies we want. If they stop taking corporate PAC money from the health insurance industry, then they'll be more inclined to support Medicare for all. Now, look, does this mean that she's not taking money from special interest in general? Technically, no. I mean, if the president of Goldman Sachs wants to max out his contribution to her at $2,700, he can still technically do that. I mean, the same is true for Bernie Sanders, but she's being transparent here and she's saying, look, you're going to be able to see all my donors now. No more dark money. And if somebody donates to me, you're going to be able to look at the FEC report and see his or her name and decide for yourself. So I have nothing negative to say here. I'm absolutely happy about this, and I applaud Kirsten Gillibrand. Fantastic, bold decision. Tom Perez has now been the DNC chairman for a year, and when he first became the DNC chairman, a lot of us progressives made fun of him because he couldn't articulate an actual vision for the Democratic Party. All he would do was espouse platitudes and never really say anything substantive about the direction the party should be headed in or even what they stood for currently. So he's had a year to come up with something, and he was interviewed on MSNBC, and they were mostly talking about Dreamers and why he doesn't really think his party caved, even though they did cave and they sold out Dreamers. But nonetheless, there was a portion where he contrasted the Democratic Party with the Republican Party. And this really was his opportunity to show us that he's perfected what he should say when talking about the Democratic Party's values, because it's always Tom Perez that says, when we lead with our values, we win, right? Well, what are those values? Now, as you're about to see here, he still doesn't really have 
inadequate way of describing <laughs> the party's platform. In fact, he was struggling here because you could tell he was doing this off the cuff. He was struggling to cite what the party stands for. Take a look. There's still a concern and discussion about Democrats divided. You oh. know the Dems in disarray hashtag that, that is out there that is being talked about. Uh, Jess oh. O'Connell left last month, left her job, as oh, you know. She's still, she's still at the DNC. She is leaving. Yeah, yeah. She is moving on. Is that because of poor fundraising? Does that show disarray oh. inside the DNC? You know what? Here's Jess has done a spectacular job, and uh, she helped us lay a foundation by working tirelessly. And that's how we were able to win elections in 2017. The Republicans will always raise more money than Democrats. They passed a reckless tax cut. But, but what the but here's the key, and here's why we're winning. They're morally bankrupt. They have people like Porter in the White House. They support Roy Moore. They're excited that Joe Arpaio is running for the Senate. And we, in the meantime, are fighting for health care, fighting for fair wages for everyone, fighting for the right to organize, th- fighting for women. Do you think you'll message on the Rob Porter issue that has come up? Will well, that Rob, be something else? I mean, what what hap- what the handline of Rob Porter is the tip of the iceberg. And what it illustrates is that they just don't believe women. You know, Donald Trump attacks the women uh, who come forward. They attack the women, and, and it was only a photograph that finally made them believe Rob Porter. You, Roy Moore, the notion that you would support Judge Moore, invest money. They don't believe women, and, and that that's one of the many reasons why Republicans are not winning these elections, because they're morally bankrupt. I'll, I'll take our situation over theirs any day of the week, because we are on the right side of the issues. Okay, so after... A year as DNC chairman, that was pathetic. He should have all the policy positions that are exciting, that a majority of Americans care about, just memorized by now. But as you can see there, he struggled to get through differences between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Tom, voters aren't going to be inclined to vote for you if you clearly are struggling to articulate what the party stands for to begin with do you even know what the party stands for all you did there was list a bunch of platitudes he talked about how bad the republican party is which i think is just evident to everyone at this point he stated their position on daca but that doesn't really matter because democrats decided to unilaterally disarm and opted to fold at the most minimal amount of pressure Republicans put on them. So in saying that you are going to stand up for dreamers, that doesn't really mean much to dreamers or voters, the majority of which support dreamers, if your party is folding. So what do you stand for? Well, just this is what he stands for. He says, Republicans are morally bankrupt. They have people like Porter in the White House, referring, of course, to Rob Porter, who was recently accused of physically and mentally abusing former wives. And he says they support Roy Moore. They're excited that Joe Arpaio is running for the Senate. So, of course, he listed off the usual reasons why Republicans are bad. And again, a lot of voters, most voters know that Republicans are bad, but they typically don't tend to come out and vote unless Democrats are offering a vision that's exciting. So he also says, and in the meantime, we're fighting for health care, fighting for fair wages for everyone, fighting for the right to organize, fighting for women. Now, all of this is not specific at all. These are very vague things that he claims the party is fighting for. What does it mean to say that he's fighting for health care or that the Democratic Party is fighting for health care? Does that mean that they're fighting for Medicare for all? What does that mean, Tom? Just saying that you're fighting for health care means nothing because Republicans can also say that they're fighting for health care. They could say, well, we're fighting for people to have better health care on the private market by dismantling Obamacare. It's, it's factually incorrect. It's bullshit, but they can still say it. So when you're 
when you're contrasting the Democratic Party with the Republican Party, you've got to name specifics. What policy specific priorities do you have pertaining to healthcare? Is it Medicare for all? If not, that's stupid, but is it a public option? Just saying you fight for healthcare, it effectively means nothing. You need to be more specific so that way voters don't think you're bullshitting them. And since you are bullshitting them, well, nobody's going to believe you. And if he was a serious leader and he really wanted his party to win over the overwhelming majority of the electorate's support, he could have said, we support nationwide legalization of marijuana, and we also want to end the drug war. We want to bring all the troops home, and we want to stop endless wars. We support Medicare for all, and we won't stop fighting until we get Medicare for all. And once we get Medicare for all, we know Republicans are going to try to attack it and water it down. So not only will we fight to get Medicare for all, but we will fight relentlessly to defend Medicare for all. He could talk about how he wants to ban fracking or how they support a $15 minimum wage tied to inflation, how the party wants to invest in renewable energy, how they're going to grant not only citizenship to every single dreamer in the country, but give every single undocumented immigrant residing in America an actual path to citizenship. He could have said that they support universal basic income, or he could have said that they're going to force large multinational corporations and billionaires to pay their fair share of taxes once and for all. Now, he didn't say these things because the party does not support most of these policy positions. The Senate, at least, Senate Democrats came out in support of a $15 minimum wage, but we don't know where the House stands. Uh, we have a majority of House Democrats supporting Medicare for all, but in the Senate, there isn't a majority of Democrats supporting Medicare for all. There's about 15 or 16 currently. So we don't know where the aggregate party stands because there's so much deviation between the House and the Senate. There is so little party cohesiveness and unity with regard to policy. They can't form a cohesive platform to coalesce behind because they don't really have any cohesive platform currently so all he does is list vague platitudes and certainly if he listed off all of those policies that i talked about then that would isolate the party's millionaire donors and multinational corporation donors so that's why of course he couldn't say that so what he tries to do instead and what all corporate democrats try to do is they list these vague platitudes we care about women we care about a living wage but they don't tell you the real specifics when it comes to policy. Voters care about the specifics, they care about policy, and they're going to think you're disingenuous because you are if you just say you vaguely support healthcare. Well, we all support healthcare to one degree or another, including Republicans. I think most Republicans would say that they support healthcare and they want to quote fight for healthcare. But what does that mean pertaining to policy? How does your support for quote healthcare translate into policy outputs so that's the problem that tom perez has always had and clearly has not addressed at this point and really if the democrats are going to have a chance at taking back the house or the senate or both they've got to get behind an actual coherent policy and the reason why they haven't arguably is because i mean it starts at the top the leaders haven't does Nancy Pelosi support Medicare for all? No. Does Tom Perez support Medicare for all? No. What does he stand for? We, we know that he loves to espouse platitudes, but what policies are you going to bring to the table for voters? That is what is going to excite them to come out and vote for you, and that's how you defeat Republicans. The only question is if Tom Perez and Democrats will have the courage to stand up to their donors 
and actually fight for things Americans want? I think we all know the answer to that. Well, that's all I got for you guys today. I hope you all enjoy that show. Um, and if you have made it this far in the program, thank you so much for watching us um, and supporting the show just by tuning in and sharing and whatnot. Um, as usual, before we leave, I want to send a huge thank you to all of our Patreon patrons and PayPal contributors because you guys seriously are crucial to the show's existence and you also help us to thrive. So thank you all so much. I truly appreciate it and can never articulate just how grateful I am for your generosity. So thank you all so much. I will see you next week. Take care.